This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. In 2014, while doing research at the St. Isidore Basilica in León, Spain, Margarita Torres and José Ortega del Rio found something peculiar. Two medieval Egyptian documents referencing the Chalice of Christ. The discovery eventually led Torres and Ortega to an ancient cup, which carbon dating confirms to have coexisted with Jesus Christ. You may not be familiar with this find, but you're probably aware of this cup's more common name, the Holy Grail. Torres and Ortega's discovery exposed them to hundreds of skeptics, all of whom had doubts about whether this was the real grail. This is nothing new. For centuries, historians and Christian believers alike have debated whether the grail ever existed in the first place. There are over 200 supposed holy grails in Europe alone, and many of the written accounts of the grail ascribe magical attributes to it. If it does exist, How can we know which one is the Holy Grail? Still, the Bible references a cup used by Christ at the Last Supper. If a grail did exist, it would date back 2,000 years. The pieces of Torah's and Ortega's puzzle look like they line up. Could this ancient cup be the real Holy Grail? In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries on the Parcast Network. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to Parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
This is our first episode on the Holy Grail, the cup that Jesus Christ drank from at the Last Supper. This sacred object is believed to heal wounds, grant eternal life, and bestow untold knowledge on the bearer. The Holy Grail has been the object of countless fictional quests, from legends of King Arthur's knights, to Indiana Jones movies, to Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code. The Grail has also been the focus of real-life excursions by Templar knights, religious leaders, historians, and archaeologists throughout the ages. This week, we'll look at the stories surrounding the Grail and its possible whereabouts, from secret Templar caches across Europe to a bullion repository in Kentucky. We'll also look at the biblical stories from ancient Jerusalem, the location of Christ's final resting place, which the Grail may or may not have ever left. The legend of the Grail has also made quite a few trips around Europe, both in fiction and in claims of secret burials. Everyone from King Arthur to German Nazis has stories linked to the Grail. Next week, we'll look at how likely these narratives are and weigh in on the most plausible explanation for this missing treasure as we try to answer these two key questions. Did the Holy Grail really exist? And if so, where is it now? The Holy Grail story begins with the Last Supper. In order to understand the Grail, it's important to understand the Christian beliefs surrounding its creation. Even if you aren't a Christian, you've probably seen Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting, The Last Supper, which features Jesus Christ in the center, having a meal with his 12 followers. This painting was made 1,500 years after the event took place, and people still hang reproductions of it in their homes today. The titular Last Supper is one of the most famous scenes in the entire New Testament. It took place the night before Jesus died and was attended by his apostles, the twelve devout followers who were tasked with spreading and upholding Jesus' teachings. Jesus had already performed many miracles, such as turning water into wine and feeding a whole crowd of people with a loaf of bread and a few fish. These acts made him popular with the people and led to new followers for the growing Christian religion. But Jesus' fame also invited enemies. Christianity was neither a popular nor an accepted religion among the Romans, who were the dominant ruling group from about 30 BCE to 300 AD. Rome practiced a polytheistic religion made up of many smaller cults to individual gods. This carried over from Greek tradition and generally allowed conquered peoples to bring their own gods into the Roman system. Christianity was in direct opposition to Roman polytheism because it only had one god and considered it blasphemy to recognize false gods. Jesus was Jewish, but that didn't make him popular with Jewish people either since he was encouraging his followers to deviate from the Jewish traditions. As Jesus and his teaching rose in fame, the Roman and Jewish leaders of the time began to conspire to have him killed. According to the book of Matthew, chapter 26, verse 20 to 24 of the New International Version Bible, the story of the Last Supper goes, When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. 
Jesus was referring to Judas, an apostle who sold him out to authorities for 30 silver coins. This led to Jesus' arrest, crucifixion, and death, as well as his eventual rebirth. This is also what makes the Holy Grail so important. It was the last vessel Jesus used to break bread and hold communion with his followers on earth. This is mentioned in the next section of the story, which says, quote, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins." End quote. This event is so important to Christians because it forms the basis for communion, one of the key Christian practices. During communion, a person consumes wine and bread as a reenactment of Christ sharing a meal with his disciples. This cements their relationship with God and nourishes their soul. This Bible passage is still used today to show where communion began. The bread is symbolic of Jesus' flesh, and the wine is his blood. Different brands of Christianity debate how symbolically or literally this practice of drinking Christ's blood and eating his flesh is meant to be taken. But it's a key tenet of the religion. For the legend of the Holy Grail, it's literal. This cup held the blood of Christ. Jesus' blood is what gives the Holy Grail its healing properties, which makes sense symbolically since Christ spilling his blood on the cross is what gives Christians the opportunity for salvation. This mix of literal and symbolic representation around the Grail is one of the reasons people debate whether it actually existed or is just a literary device. The day after the Last Supper and his betrayal by Judas, Jesus was crucified. For Christians, this sacrifice signifies God's forgiveness of sin and the welcoming of his children into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus allowed himself to be killed by the Romans in order to save all Christians. After hours of crucifixion, Jesus died on the cross. One of his followers, Joseph of Arimathea, took care of the body and burial. Matthew chapter 27, verse 57 to 60 says, quote, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. So Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn in the rock. He then rolled a great stone to the door of the tomb and went away." End quote. Joseph was not an apostle, but he was both a member of the council that had persecuted Jesus and a secret supporter of Christ. While Joseph had been a part of the council that judged Jesus, he had abstained from voting on this judgment. Secret supporters of Christianity were fairly common because a high-status person may lose their job and stability if they were caught supporting this unpopular religion. Joseph's high status helped him reach Jesus. While the other apostles were not allowed to approach their Messiah, Joseph was permitted to catch Christ's dripping blood in the grail. According to Christian tradition, Joseph had taken the cup from the Last Supper the night before, where Jesus had used it to serve wine. 
Therefore, it held both the wine of the covenant and Jesus' actual blood. At this point, Joseph made arrangements to keep the grail safe. A few days later, Jesus' followers found the stone broken and the tomb empty. Jesus had gone down to hell, been resurrected, and ascended to heaven. This showed that he was the Son of God, sacrificed and reborn to take away the sins of man. Christians celebrate the Last Supper, Jesus' death and rebirth each year over Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday. Easter is celebrated on the first Sunday after the first full moon, after the vernal equinox. The general story of the Last Supper, the crucifixion, and Christ's death and resurrection all show up repeatedly in the Bible, regardless of the version or translation. What doesn't show up in the Bible is an explicit mention of the Holy Grail. While we've pointed out places where Holy Grail lore corresponds to the story, the Bible doesn't actually ever provide any of this information on the cup. Believers and historians often point to the inclusion of the cup Jesus drank from at the Last Supper story as evidence for the Grail. However, there is no mention of Joseph of Arimathea having the cup or catching Jesus' blood in the Bible. And yet, there are multiple grail stories about Joseph of Arimathea. In many versions of the story, he sends the grail to England with St. Philip for safekeeping, thus bringing Christianity to Europe. Sometimes he is attributed with building the first Christian church in England, or even the world. In other versions, Joseph even took Jesus with him to England when Jesus was a teenager. In these legends, he is an uncle or some other relative of Jesus. However, none of this is documented except the passage about Joseph claiming and burying Christ's body. This isn't to say it didn't happen. The Bible is a collection of oral traditions later recorded and amassed into a single volume. The earliest written accounts of Jesus' life came at least 50 years after his death. Over time, these retellings were assembled into the Bible with the Gospels, also known as the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which were different authors' divinely inspired accounts. Each Gospel is meant to showcase major pieces of Jesus' life and Christian faith. While the Bible is largely considered a holy book and the Word of God, we know that these stories have been translated at the very least, which led to changes and variations over time. As time went on, different versions of these stories were gathered and translated by various leaders. For example, the King James Bible, which is still a standard edition used today, was translated and published around 1610. In all likelihood, pieces of the story of Jesus' sacrifice, death, and resurrection have been cut, retold, and rearranged to suit various eras' beliefs and needs. Historians know the Bible has changed over time since we have historical copies from different centuries. Even now, Christian denominations like Catholicism frequently update translations of biblical stories and ancient prayers. Based on more accurate translations, Pope Francis suggested amendments to the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father as recently as 2017. Is it possible that the Holy Grail and Joseph of Arimathea stories didn't make it into the final cut of the Bible, or that they were removed over the centuries? 
Remember, Christianity was persecuted for several hundred years. It's likely that Christians wanted to protect this sacred artifact from being destroyed and thus removed mention of it from the Bible. But if the Bible started to emerge 50 years after Christ's death, why is it that we have no written accounts of the Grail for another 1,000 years? We'll look into the history of the written legends of the Grail right after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands Still. Now, back to the story. The Holy Grail appears in written work for the first time in the late 1100s, not as part of the Bible, but in the legends of King Arthur. King Arthur was the larger-than-life King of England who established the Knights of the Round Table and promoted chivalry. His quests and adventures with his fellow Knights of the Round Table are the stuff of legend, and one of the most famous legends is the quest for the Holy Grail. In various versions of this story, Arthur or his knights seek out this magical object and then become its sacred protectors. These legends didn't come into being all at once. They began as oral tradition, likely around 600 AD, when Arthur was believed to have existed. However, they were not recorded for at least 500 years. This was very similar to the stories in the Bible. The reliance on oral history was typical for the Dark Ages, the period roughly from 500 to 1500 AD, from the fall of the Roman Empire to the Renaissance. There was little written history during this time. But accounts of the Holy Grail would have been from 500 years earlier, right around the time our perception of years changes from BCE to AD. Here's a possible explanation for what happened during those lost years. Art historians don't date the first truly Christian images until around 300 AD or later. This is because Christians had to hide their art within familiar Roman pagan symbols to avoid persecution. The shepherd imagery often associated with Christ looks a lot like pagan shepherd symbols. It would have been an easy way to hide images from unfriendly eyes. Unfortunately, it also means we can't always distinguish what was hidden Christian practice and what was plain old pagan images. All that to say, it's completely understandable that an object that was important to a persecuted religion did not appear in a written record from 1 to 500 AD and then moved to oral tradition on account of the Dark Ages. The first time the Grail appears in writing is in the year 1190 in the Arthurian legend Percival, the Story of the Grail by Chrétien de Troyes. In the first story, Percival grows up in the forest with his mother, sheltered from the darkness of the world. 
As Percival reaches his teenage years, he is thrust from his idyllic childhood into the joys and pains of the real world, knights, kings, combat, and love. Percival struggles and sees himself as an outsider, despite trying to fit in. He seeks out King Arthur in hopes of becoming a knight. Percival searches far and wide and eventually comes to a castle by the sea. A knight comes out of the castle holding a lance and a golden chalice. Percival does not know the significance of the chalice and asks the knight if King Arthur can be found inside. The knight answers, yes. King Arthur, as it turns out, is in despair because the golden chalice, the Holy Grail, has been stolen. Thus, Percival begins his quest to recover it now that he knows its significance. This story makes a lot of sense in Christian Europe. Percival is a stand-in for a reader. Young, raised outside of Christianity, and not able to recognize its goodness the first time he sees it. A later version of the Percival Grail story is the Fisher King, or the Wounded King. In this story, Percival comes across a castle that is home to the Grail Keeper. The Grail Keeper and his family have protected the Grail since Jesus' death. Every king in this family must take care of the Holy Grail and pass it on to his son. However, this king has a thigh or groin wound, implying he cannot father another generation. In some versions, this is punishment for his being unchaste or otherwise immoral. Regardless, the king will die without any heirs, and thus there will be no one left to protect the grail. He can be healed only if the right person comes along and asks the right question. This is the first account of the healing properties associated with the Holy Grail. In some later versions, the Fisher King is the son of a second older king who is sustained only by the power of the Grail. This further emphasizes the healing properties of the Grail. In most versions of the story, Percival is able to recover the cup and bring it back to Arthur and the Round Table, thus becoming its next protector. In later versions, he is joined by additional knights, but it's typically Percival who is able to recover the Grail. Chrétien de Troyes penned this tale in 1190 as an addition to the increasingly popular Arthurian legend. Chrétien eventually gained some fame as a writer of Arthurian romance. His stories of the other knights, such as Lancelot and Yvain, were quite popular. Percival was Chrétien's fifth and final romance, which he left unfinished, most likely due to either his death, the death of his patron, Philip, Count of Flanders, or both. Chrétien claimed to be working from a historical source text provided to him by Philip, but no copies or records of that work survive today. This was typical in the era and typical with writers of Arthur legends. Sadly, this means we can't verify whether Chrétien's sources were real or not. After Chrétien's death, the Percival story was finished by four other authors. In all these stories, the Grail is described as having been kept and protected in England for a long time, and it was eventually passed on to Arthur and his knights. This tracks with the Joseph of Arimathea stories that placed the Grail in England after Jesus' death. However, Joseph of Arimathea stories' original written records also date to the Middle Ages, not to biblical times. Grail stories weren't limited to just England either. Chrétien de Troyes was French, 
And in the early 1200s, just a decade or two after Chrétien's writing, a German writer also composed an epic poem about Percival, or in his case, Parzival. The writer's name was Wolfram von Eschenbach. Eschenbach's story had much in common with the Chrétien version, suggesting either he'd read the French version or that the oral story was quite common. There was still a grail, still a knight named Percival, and still a fisher king. However, the episodes were expanded as details were added to enhance the drama. For example, in the German version, Percival ends up fighting and killing a knight who turns out to be his own brother. In addition, the Fisher King is explicitly being punished for not being chased. This is important because in Eschenbach's tale, the Fisher King had a military group in his service called the Templars. These warriors were sworn to chastity and to protecting the Grail. They had a lot in common with the Templars. While the Templars are of questionable origin, the Knights Templars were very much real. In 1095, about a hundred years before Chrétien and Eschenbach's work, the Pope called for Christians to recapture the Holy Land from Muslim rule. Thus, the Crusades, also known as the Holy Wars, began. Four years later, in 1099, Christian forces successfully captured the city. Christians began making pilgrimages to the Holy Land shortly after its capture. A group of knights protected these travelers as the route was dangerous. Their original name was the Poor Fellow Soldiers of Christ and the Temple of Solomon. I can see why they eventually shortened it. Same. These knights received lodging next to the temple and took up the iconic Templar uniform of a red eight-pointed cross on a white tunic. The Order of the Knights Templar was officially founded in 1119, about 20 years later, by a Frenchman named Hugh de Payen. By 1129, another 10 years later, the Knights Templar took vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience, similar to monks. Instead of serving in monasteries, these men were ready to die for their faith, shepherding others and fighting in the Crusades. The Templars were immediately popular among Europeans. Kings, feudal lords, and the church itself gave generously to support them. They even began accruing vast territory around Europe. By 1139, about 20 years after their founding, the Pope granted the Templars special privileges and exemptions. It wasn't long before people began associating the Templars with secret holy work. For example, Vatican's Secret Archives historian, Dr. Barbara Frail, reported that the cloth Christ was buried in vanished after the 1204 sack of Constantinople for about 100 years. Many theories suggest the Templars hid and protected this important relic until it was returned to the church. It's not a huge stretch of the imagination to assume the Templars may also have been protecting the Holy Grail. They were, after all, secretive, holy, and supported by the church. According to theories, the Knights Templar were in possession of the Grail from the time of the conquest of the Holy Land. However, as their power and wealth grew in the 13th and 14th centuries, the kings of Europe grew wary of them and began to persecute them. The Grail was too powerful to entrust to kings or even the corrupt church, and so these holy men took it upon themselves to guard humanity. 
most accounts agree on that. What they don't agree on is where. Up next, we'll look at the history of the theories that all seek to answer the same question. Where is the Holy Grail now? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now back to the story. Templars, Arthurian knights, or just modern Christians? Who has the Holy Grail, and where is it? Throughout the 1500s, romantic retellings of history and myth about the Holy Grail conflated into one streamlined narrative. The Grail became a commonly known story, often intertwined with the mystical Knights Templar. This was a time of low literacy and low education. It's understandable that the common person would not be able to tell fact from fiction. This started to change as Europe moved out of the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance. The demand for biblical art grew among the upper class. In 1498, Leonardo da Vinci completed what would become one of the most famous paintings in history, The Last Supper. The painting is a massive 350 inches long by 180 inches tall, or roughly 30 feet long by 15 feet tall. The epic scale suits the subject matter. This is the pivotal moment in Christian lore, the moment Jesus reveals one of his disciples will betray him. Since the painting's creation, many people have speculated that it holds secret clues to the Grail's whereabouts, However, in the painting, there's no clear vessel Christ is either drinking from or pouring wine from. That doesn't mean da Vinci didn't include the Holy Grail, though. The word grail comes from the Latin word graal, which means a vessel that can hold something. This means that the Holy Grail doesn't necessarily have to be a cup or chalice, just a dish that holds liquid. This confusion on what the grail actually is has gone even farther. What if the grail isn't a cup or a plate at all, but Christ's blood? This theory is popular due to the medieval French wordplay sang-royal versus sangral. The first means royal blood. The second means holy grail. But due to French phonetics, when spoken, these phrases are almost the same. If the real magical item was the blood of Jesus and not the cup itself, then this would reaffirm both Christ's power and the importance of Christian communion. Christ's blood, represented by wine, allows believers to reach the kingdom of heaven and thus obtain everlasting life. This line of thinking spawned an entire subset of grail theories. What if the grail was actually Mary's womb, giving magical everlasting life to Jesus? What if the grail was actually Jesus' secret teachings, passed down through his chosen followers to other followers? Or if the real grail was our own individual belief in Christ and the blessings that brings? 
As the Crusades faded into the annals of history and the Templars turned into a secret society whose actions were increasingly mysterious, theories that the Grail wasn't an object at all grew increasingly popular. Plus, it made for a more dramatic story. In the early 1800s, Austrian writer and pseudo-historian Baron Joseph von Hammer-Pergstall linked the Grail back to the mysterious Knights Templar. However, in his version, the Knights were seeking out secret knowledge, not an actual cup. Baron von Hammer-Pergstall did not have any historical data to back up his claim, but he wasn't the only one reimagining the Grail. In 1933, German writer Otto Rahn tied the Grail to German nationalism, stating that it represented a pure German religion free of the corruption of contemporary Christianity. At the time, there was a general pursuit of a pure and holy state of being that returned to an older, idealized time and transcended the day-to-day mess of modern Europe. His work went on to inspire Nazi occultists. Remember, this was 1933. In fact, his work is often cited as the inspiration for the Indiana Jones films. Linking the Grail to a specific European nationalism was typical at this time. Arthur's stories had set the Grail in England and the UK, where France and Germany both had versions to place it in their countries. As a result of this renewed interest over the 19th and 20th centuries, people started trying to actually find the Grail, a physical one. While we'll go more into the specifics and likelihoods of each of these possibilities next week, we want to introduce some of the most viable theories as to the Grail's current whereabouts. The first and most common story of the Grail's whereabouts concerns European castles and churches. That is plural, because there are an estimated 200 claims of the Grail's true location in Europe alone. Location 1 is Glastonbury Tor in Glastonbury, England. Historians believe Glastonbury to be the real-life location of Avalon, the land of Arthurian legend. The theory that the Grail is also at Glastonbury follows Arthurian legend and says that after the First Crusade, Templars brought important biblical relics back to England where they were buried at Avalon with King Arthur. King Arthur and Queen Guinevere's graves are believed to be buried at Glastonbury. However, no cup has turned up. That said, if Avalon was a real-life location, other Arthurian legend locations could truly exist as well. Santa Maria de Montserrat in Catalonia, Spain, is believed to be the real-life location of the Fisher King's castle. This castle is from the German writer Eschenbach's retelling of Chrétien de Troyes' Percival story in 1210. According to legend, St. Jerome, who plays prominently in several Grail legends, brought the Grail to the castle around 300 AD. The Grail is said to be buried either under the castle or in the jagged mountain it sits on. This mountain is extremely hard to navigate, so if this is truly the location of the Grail, it's not likely to be found. Dipping a little more into the occult, Castle contender number three is Roslyn Chapel in Roslyn, Scotland. Construction on this chapel began in 1456, toward the end of the Crusades. It was overseen by a nobleman and knight named William Sinclair. He is believed to be a descendant of Templars. 
The chapel is famous for its secret underground stone chambers and wide variety of strange carvings, which historians believe took about 40 years to complete. Two standouts among those carvings are pre-Christian Celtic imagery symbolizing spring and summer, as well as North American corn. Corn was entirely unknown to Europeans at this time, so it's very strange this imagery appears on the chapel. There's also the apprentice pillar, a single heavily carved pillar that does not match the rest of the chapel. Theorists believe the grail is either hidden in the apprentice pillar or in the Sinclair crypt, which is incredibly well sealed. Furthermore, the Sinclair estate will not let anyone do excavations of either the pillar or the crypt. If the grail is there, we won't be able to get to it, which might be exactly what they want. Our second branch of theories is that the Grail never actually left Jerusalem. Historians increasingly believe the Grail was either buried with Christ and never found, or that it may be in the sewers beneath Jerusalem. These are both viable theories, since it's extremely difficult to get permission to dig in this ancient and holy city, even for archaeologists. That's true for two main reasons. The site is still a major holy location for Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Many buildings have joint or split ownership between multiple groups and religions, sometimes with boundaries literally running across a room. Getting permission to dig there is difficult due to both cultural sensitivities and the logistical challenges of the geography around the site. The other issue is that these buildings are old and irreplaceable. One of the most strongly suspected locations of the Grail is in the ancient sewers below the city. However, any excavations there would risk the collapse of the precious buildings above. Clearances for these excavations are extremely difficult to obtain. As a result, very little archaeological work has been done in the sewers. The sewers would have been a good hiding place for the Grail because they're secure and hard to navigate. Plus, there was a time when their entrance was a secret held primarily by the Jewish population. It's likely that the Grail itself was not a particularly fancy object, given that Jesus was poor and did not approve of materialism. Some historians believe the Grail would have been clay or wood and be long gone by now. It might really be the dirt beneath the city. Our last branch of viable theories takes the secret hiding place to a different level. This branch is particularly popular with those who believe the Grail does in fact have magical powers. This theory says that the Grail is hidden away in an extremely high security vault, often for the safety of both the Grail and the world. Our Roslyn Chapel theory actually blends this theory and the European Castle theory. This theory of high security protection from the Grail isn't new. It's the same premise of the Fisher King story. It also fits nicely with the Knights Templar narrative of a secret organization protecting the Grail. The two main contenders for this location are somewhere deep in the Vatican's secret vaults and a bullion factory in Kentucky. Yes, you heard that second one right. A bullion repository in Kentucky. That's bullion as in precious metal that will be turned into coins, not the flavoring you put in your soup. The reason for this theory's popularity is that the factory has some of the highest security in the world. 
no one knows exactly how it works, other than it's intense. No one other than the people working in the Mint is allowed inside, not even the president. The repository is right next to Fort Knox, which means about 30,000 troops train nearby daily with military-grade helicopters and equipment. No one is allowed within 400 yards of the building. The vault combination has 10 components, each kept by a different individual. It's also lined with solid granite and has a 22-ton steel door. In addition to the main vault door, the gold housed here resides in small, separate rooms with their own steel doors. It's not a stretch that other precious items would be stored here. In the past, the repository has housed various important international objects, such as the Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence, the Hungarian crown jewels, and the crown of St. Stephen. According to this theory, the repository also houses the Holy Grail, along with the True Cross, Ark of the Covenant, and other magical or lost artifacts. Why else would they have such intense security? Then, in 2011, there was a breakthrough discovery. Egyptian documents chronicling the movement of the sacred chalice from Jerusalem to Cairo to Spain in the Middle Ages. Historians Margarita Torres and José Manuel Ortega del Rio spent three years tracking down the chalice. Their studies led them to the goblet of the Infanta Doña Uraca, daughter of King Fernando I of León in the mid-11th century. The parchments identified the sacred chalice by its material agate and a chip missing from the top. The princess goblet had the same characteristics and its origin was previously unknown. According to the documents, Muslim forces from Egypt took the chalice from Jerusalem to Cairo around 400 to 500 AD. From there, the chalice hung around in storage for a few hundred years before an Egyptian leader gave it as a gift to a Muslim emir in Mediterranean Spain in return for assistance during an Egyptian famine. That emir then gave the chalice to King Fernando I as a peace offering, as King Fernando was a powerful Christian leader and Muslim Spain was a minority culture. This lines up with when the princess goblet entered Fernando's collection. Carbon dating confirms the chalice originated in 200 BC to 100 AD, the correct date to have coexisted with Christ. The Egyptian parchments account for its movement and its 1,000 years in the Léon Basilica. The evidence is strong. Documentation exists. The dating checks out. Could this be the true Holy Grail? Next week, will trace the best historical explanations for why the Holy Grail might not have existed at all, but instead have been an extension of medieval legend. We'll also look at where the Holy Grail would most likely be today if it really does exist, and go more in depth on some of the top theories on its current whereabouts, including the 2014 Spanish discovery. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back Thursday with part two of the Holy Grail. 
you can find more episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. Well, if you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Taylor Cleland and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Richard Rossner.